Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. All right, welcome back to Mastering Agility. To all the listeners out there from around the world, Sander has been sharing with me listener statistics, and I know we've got a lot of you from a lot of different places, so we're hoping that we've got some great topics today. I know we have some questions from the audience and from our Discord community, and Sander, let's start with the basics, man. How's your week been going? It's been great so far, dude. Look at the weather over here. It's, it's it, The sun is shining. It's warm out here. I'm talking to you. Can this week get any better? How are you doing? <laughs> Well, I am in Chicago, Illinois right now, so I've just finished up a business week, and now I'm taking a couple days for fun, and it's a little bit rainy here, but I just love Chicago. It's such a great city, very vibrant. There's always something going on, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited for what the next couple days are going to bring, and uh, and I'm sure I'll be excited to get home again as well and get back to some of that routine. What's the best part about Chicago? Well, I would say it's probably the food, and this weekend is about music. So I'm here for a concert, and there is a lot of blues here. I'm actually uh, about a block and a half away from a very famous blues bar. So I think for me, it's either food or music, but I, I just get inspired with the skyscrapers, the skyline, walking. I took my dog for a walk through Grant Park this morning. And, you know, parts of me have always kind of wanted to live in New York or Chicago, but I also like the country. I like my solitude. I like the privacy. So these trips give me the best of both worlds. Uh, how about you? Like when you go to a big city, what do you what do you start by by doing or what do you what's on your must do list before you have to leave? Getting lost, like actively get mm. lost because then you're kind of forced to explore the city and just see where you end up and what kind of things that you you, you come across. Obviously, you want to make sure in advance to check which neighborhoods are safe and which are not and where to go and what not to do on a rough scale. But other than that, I like to just walk around and explore the city and see what comes across my path. I, I think that, that allows you to fully submerge yourself into a new place, um, not check your phone all the time. Right. Do you, when you travel internationally, because I know that because of what we do, both of us have probably traveled more than average. Do you have, like when you land in a city for the first time, do you have any, besides getting lost, is there anything you tend to do? Not specific. Yeah. Maybe just check like on, on, just do a quick Google search, what to do in X and Y city and where to go and what not to do. And um, ask people like you up front, what kind of things should I eat? For instance, where to go, uh, what kind of restaurants, what, what kind of food would you would you recommend in Chicago, for instance? Um, Chicago is obviously known for their pizza. Um, that's a big one. I tend to really like the Italian beef. So Chicago has a very big history in Italians and Irish Americans. Uh, for me, it's about Italian beef and maybe a hot dog at the ballpark. Um there's another for any person who's been to Chicago or from this area, there's a very famous popcorn that people get here. So I'm sure a bag of that will come home with us. When I land in not even a foreign city, but just a city I've never been to, one of the things I'll do is I'll ask a taxi driver or an Uber driver, where should I go? And if they start to give me the typical touristy answer, I'll say, no, no, no. Where do you go? Where do you take your friends and family when they come to visit? And they're like, oh, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> and I do the same thing with food. Like if I order an Uber to the hotel, they'll say, I'll say, I want dinner. Where should I go? And then I'm like, where do you go? And I've had some amazing experiences in different cities by just asking those simple questions. You know where I think we should go? To the mural where? board. To the mural board, absolutely. I had this really cool question coming up um, 
to me after the PSM2 class I was teaching the other day. And it sounds how to craft a sprint goal when only a few developers are actively working on it. It feels like we're sort of neglecting the other developers who are not working on the sprint goal. When you hear this, what's Ooh. your thought? What's the first thing first thing that pops to mind? I don't care. That's the first thing that popped to mind when you read that question. But my question back to that person is, what is the concern, either real or behind that question? And if the question behind the question, as I say, is, does everyone need to be participatory in the sprint goal? I have some thoughts on that. If it's maybe the same people are always the ones working towards the big goal, that would be interesting to know. How about you? Those are what immediately come to my mind. Yeah, I, I think I hate to be like one of those scrum police kind of guys that says, well, the scrum guide says, but there is nothing saying that everyone has to work on the sprint goal, right? It has to be cohesive. It has to create some focus, but it does nowhere does it say everyone needs to work on the sprint goal. Right. I think that's a very common misconception when we introduce the idea of sprint goals to people. And you and I are probably saying goals as plural, but it's singular. And when I talk to people about having a singular goal, they immediately have a concern, like, how can we only do one thing this sprint? Or how, what if, what if I don't know anything about that? Or what if, how are seven of us working towards one thing? Those are really common questions. Yeah, and I think there's also a little bit of a consistency that you want to uh, want to tap onto. If it's continuously the same people who are not working on a sprint goal, then ultimately they might feel they won't that they are not really mattering to the whole development effort. Like, what's my role if I don't actively work on this? I never get a say in the in the sprint goal. Uh, what am I doing here? So I can I can sort of understand from that that perspective. Um, yeah, I think that the first question would be what makes it what makes you feel that developers would be neglected? Exactly. The, the other thing that I said just yesterday is helping towards the sprint goal might not be what everyone thinks. Um, my partner in life helps me accomplish my goals sometimes by doing things completely unrelated so that I can focus on the sprint goal. So I think it's interesting to think about what help looks like. Yeah, it has a lot to do. I think um, what I see happening a lot is that teams are trying to reverse engineer a sprint goal where they dive into the sprint planning with all the goodwill in the world and they start thinking about ultimate only at the end of the sprint planning, they're like, oh, what's our, how should our sprint goal look like? We haven't thought about any objective. We have not thought, thought about how we should create any cohesiveness here or what's the plan going to look like. Um, so what is it that ties these random objects that we dragged into this? What does it tie together or how does it tie together? And if you're not really thinking about this during the sprint planning, you lack that kind of that sense of commonality and the, the sense of uh, of true focus. And what's the most important thing that we got to tackle right now? And how do we do that? And that's a whole different beast to slay. Absolutely. I think one of the other questions I would have for you is um, if we think about the sprint goal and maybe it's a few people that are working towards it really actively. Um, what other questions do you get around the sprint goal? Because I find this to be a highly um, problematic idea for a lot of people to understand. Everyone says they want focus and clarity, but the sprint goal seems to be a struggle for many people. But when I've been able to break through those objections, they get it. So what other objections around this idea of a singular focus for the sprint are you getting? I think that's that's the first thing that I get questions a lot is why 
it doesn't really have to be one. Does it really need to be one goal? Or can we? We're, I mean, we're just working on on two, four, six, twelve different things at once. Uh, can we spread uh, spread the goal across those? Technically, yes, you can. Is it a good idea? I don't think so. Uh, if every if all those houses in your neighborhood are on are on fire, which ones are you going to put out first? I don't know, uh, and I I think that quite often it relates back to the desire of many people in the organization to do everything at once because it, as long as people are busy, it seems like they're doing a lot and they're delivering stuff because busy people means a lot of output, a lot of bang for buck, if you will. Failing to understand that it's not about output, it's about outcome. And if you can reach that with one item, just exaggerating the example, if you can reach that with one item, all good. But if you're going to spread that across like 12 different things and all the developers are working on everything at the same time, nothing really gets done. Right. One thing I did, I know many of our listeners like specific tips that they can take back and apply. My team this week said, is there a way that we can quickly see of all the things we're working on, which ones are required for the sprint goal? And I said, I'm glad you asked. I got a great solution for that. And I showed him that I had applied a tag in their work management system of SG. And we queried on that tag and said, these are the things that the team is saying are required. And they thought that was very helpful. Yeah, I'm really curious uh, what our audience is thinking, whether they've come across such a such a scenario. Uh, and have you ever seen any people that feel left out. Marge is saying my current team used to repeat all the features in the backlog and call it their sprint goal. Original quote, we have to add such and such testing tasks as well. Now for the first time, we managed to have just one. Well, mission accomplished. Well done. That's a funny thing, right? If you Our sprint goal is going to be finish item A, B, and C. Well, where's the value in that? Tell me, explain to me from my dumb person's perspective what the value is that you're going to deliver. Yeah, well, we're going to deliver a new database and we're going to finish the UX and we're going to do some tests. Uh, Okay. And how does this solve anything for our stakeholders, our users? Silence. Right. I've heard this myself many times. I think the worst example of this I heard, and, and it wasn't a team I was actively working with was I said, what are your sprint goals? Because I knew they had multiple and it was, we will add value to product A. We will add value to product B. We will add value to product C. And I go, whoa, whoa, let me stop. How is that a sprint goal? And they said, well, that's what we were taught. That's what we learned is that the sprint goals have to be value-based and they have to be related to the product. And I said, is this always the sprinkle? And they said, yes. And they showed me their team wiki page. And it was every sprint. It was just, we will add value to. And I was like, well, I understand why these are not seen as a benefit to you because that would not be a benefit to me either. So coming back to the question, how to craft a sprint goal, the flow that we talk through in our professional scrum classes is you as a product owner come in with an objective that you would like to see achieved by the end of the sprint, which in my experience usually is a little bit too ambitious, but that's where you have a discussion with the rest of the scrum team, with the developers, potentially the scrum master guides you a little bit and you check what is possible. Developers pull in the work that they feel helps in the achievement of that objective that obviously is ordered by the product owner the product backlog is ordered by the product owner. So the work isn't technically ready. If there are still open questions for the developers or by the developers, they can ask uh, the product owner to clarify that stuff. It's called refinement. And ultimately, you synthesize that sprint goal at the end of the sprint planning. All right, this was the original objective. We thought, uh, dear product owner, this may have been a little bit too ambitious, but we think we can do this based on the conversation that we just had. So instead of, um, I don't know, increasing the loading speed of the dashboard with 80%, we're going to do 30 because we think that's achievable. What do you think? All right. Sounds good. So the, the, the sprint goal is going to be um, 
increase or decrease depending on how you uh, want to look at it. Um, the loading speed of the dashboard with 30%. I have two questions for you. One is when I think of a sprint goal like that, increase the loading speed by 30%. I like that. I had a talk with our colleague, Don McGreal, who literally co-wrote the book on product ownership, uh, the first book. Um, he and I have a different, a slight difference of opinion on sprint goals. I tend to favor very specific sprint goals, like you just said. He is more okay, if I understand, and this is you know a year and a half ago, so his opinion might have changed slightly, with more, slightly more ambiguous sprint goals, still clear, clear, still focused, but he might say, we will improve the performance of, and not take the extra step to go from 80% something to 30%. What, what's your thought on that? Are you a specific sprint goal fan or are you okay with some or a lot of ambiguity? Um, it depends, my nice consultant answer. But it has a little bit to do with how much detail you're going to get out of the plan. I mean, if it's, uh, if it's too specific, you're going to slap out all the creativity of the developers to really dive into and to, to solve the issue. So I can sort of understand where Don is coming from. You want to create a little bit of a vague statement. Like, uh, how can we improve the customer satisfaction or the, uh, uh, improve the, the overall use or experience of the customers? Like, okay. That gives more of an issue to fix for the developers and they can go out and ask what's, what's the issue? What is it that's, that's currently hampering you from experiencing this at a level of an eight out of scale of a 10 and we're currently on a six? What can we do? Well, the stakeholders say, I think it's a bit slow. Ah, then we can tap into there. So I can see where he's coming from from that point. Maybe it's a little bit too specific. On the other hand, it it takes quite a while to get you to that point. So sometimes these are the intermediate steps or the training wheels, if you want, to, to guide you in the direction of setting these sprint goals. Right. I, I have two thoughts on it. One is, if we're not sure how fast something is, why? What do we need to do to understand how fast it is? And the other is I kind of look at it as training wheels like you. I might be okay with more ambiguous goals like we will improve or we will speed up or we will build or create, you know, whatever the word is for a team who's learning to benefit from sprint goals. But as time goes on, I'm going to help them try and craft better and better sprint goals. Another uh, – Again, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm interviewing you, but a question I've got for you is what comes first, the sprint goal or the sprint backlog? And is it, have you ran across the scenario where the sprint goal comes after the team has talked about the work? I think they come simultaneously. And why? Because it's, it's sort of simultaneously created it emerges and it continuously starts to evolve. Like in the discussion where you start with the objective, as I said, the product owner wants to see an objective realized. And the discussion on, and, and the plan and how and what we're going to do as developers sort of crystallizes, starts to crystallize out the whole actual sprint goal. And at the same time, the sprint backlog starts to emerge. Like the plan is being shaped, the product backlog items are being dragged into or pulled into the sprint backlog. Therefore, the sprint backlog is created and equally the sprint goal because it continuously starts to get more clear what the actual goal is going to be. So is there a chicken or an egg here? I don't think so. I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a number of assumptions baked into all of this is that we have a clear product owner. And even if we have a clear product owner, that they have a vision or a goal in mind. And I'm routinely asked, what do we do if we don't yet? We, we know we should, we know we want to, but what do we do if we don't? 
or the product owner might even be the person who comes to me and says, I like sprint goals. I already see how they can help, but I can't think of just one idea of things even, let alone a singular goal that I need. Interesting thing. Because as a product owner, of course, uh, representing the stakeholders, you want to serve all of their ideas at once. Like if you could solve everything at once, that would be amazing. But then start to think about, all right, if uh, I, I said this in a, in a previous episode as well, if tomorrow the world would come to an end when it comes to this product, what's the most valuable thing that we can do? And I don't mean the one thing that makes our stakeholders shout the loudest, but really the most valuable thing for the product. What do you really think is the first stepping stone that we can set on building increments towards the achievement of either the product goal or the product vision? And I don't think if you really look like, and that sort of drills into the question coming from the audience, uh, how could the Scrum Master support the team in actually discussing the objective rather than them just accept it as is? That's where a Scrum Master can come in and try to challenge you. Is this really the most important thing? How is this going to help us build a stepping stone towards the, that increment or the, um, uh, the the product goal or the product vision? How does this relate back to the discussion that we had in our previous sprint review? And so on. And I think that's uh, that would be the, the easiest step to take. So since, to Marge's question, since you just led a PSM2, which is typically got some experienced Scrum Masters in there. What what do you think the Scrum Master's role in the sprint goal is? Or what are some maybe intermediate to advanced level techniques that you would suggest to a Scrum Master around the sprint goal? Something that I've observed continuously in almost every team that I've been working with so far is that people are incredibly ambitious and optimistic about the things they can, they really think they can realistically achieve. And nine times out of 10, it's way too much. And that's where you can start poking around. Are we really... Are we going to be the, really be able to achieve this? Because looking at like the, the previous sprints velocity or average stuff that we've been able to pull off, I don't think this is going to fit. And usually it's, yeah, but we know how this is going to work. Ah, you have crystal balls. That's pretty cool. Give me some. Uh, uh, that's, that's one of the common things. As well as asking continuous questions, is there another way that we can do this? What options do we have? Um common anti-pattern there that I notice is that we're placing all of our money in the same basket. It's always one option. We're confident and we're not even going to experiment or think about other ways that we can reach the same goal, basically. It's con- it continuously is the same thing. So as a, pro- or as a scrum master, you can ask these kind of questions as well or really dive into what the issue is that you're trying to, to solve in this sprint. Um, in my latest sprint retrospective that I've attended, I was in, in, in such a scenario once again where the team, we were doing so what, now what, how, what, um, liberating structure, right? And one of the issues that they listed was our estimates need to be bigger. I said, why? Well, because we never really pull off what we're trying to achieve here, what we forecast. Our forecasts are continuously off by a factor of two. I said, why? Well, uh, because as we start working, we uncover that we are lacking knowledge or skills or whatever they are lacking. Something's missing, is it? Uh, so the issue isn't really that the estimates need to be bigger. Do we maybe need to do something else with refinements? I said, how does your refinement look like? Because I'm coaching this team from a distance. It's the first thing that I've been doing. I'm not really the scrum master, but I'm just there to observe and start poking around a little bit. And... They were like, uh, during our refinement, we have a, a handover to another team who goes into a different part of the refinement. They refine other stuff. And uh, yeah, we're we're kind of missing skills and we don't really understand each other. So, uh, so the refinement's off and you're missing skills and knowledge. Yeah, that might be the case. And asking these kind of questions and trying to guide these the, the developers and the rest of the Scrum team into 
their own thought process and really thinking deeper than might just meet the normal eye or how do you say that uh, at first glance? That's where you want to go as a scrum master. Mm. Right. One of the patterns that I've seen is teams will, if they're doing estimates, let's just couch it with that. I don't think estimates are trash, but I don't love the application of the idea of estimates in many places. That's a topic for a whole other podcast in the future. But they will increase, let's just call it their expectation. They will soften their their expectation of themselves, make something bigger if they're estimating it, to account for unknowns. And one of the simple things I will do is when I when I believe that to be the case or when they've told me that's the case, I'll say, so how could we turn any of those unknowns into a known? Or if you were saying we would estimate this at, I don't know, an eight, but we're going to call it a 13 because we're not sure if this other team is going to deliver their part to us and we need to account for that complexity and that dependency. I said, okay, is there anything we could quickly do to go reduce the likelihood of that not happening for us? And they're like, well, yeah, we could go talk to so-and-so or we could have asked them last sprint for things we need from them. We could have called that vendor to get a question answered about this. We could have done some research, et cetera. Those are the important things, I think. But inflating your estimates or pushing out your expectations or forecast to account for that feels like it's working around the actual problem of there is some unknowable things ahead of us for sure, but there are many of uh, many things that are unknowable now, but we could easily turn them into known known entities. Things that seem the the real issue initially often aren't the real issue. So I try to dig into those areas and then have guide people in their their own thought process and what kind of things they could uncover. Think about dependencies. Who are we? Who do we need to work with? And so on. And that kind of ties into another question that our listeners have asked. How should I interpret the plan for the sprint? How much detail is in it? And should everything be documented in product backlog items or can it just be a conversation? Interesting one. Mm. Did you get this with any context around it or did you have a response to the person asking it? No, I yet? haven't. This uh, this came through to me okay. through email after PSM2 class. There are okay. many angles to go with. Mm-hmm. I think my immediate reaction is I'm okay with any item on a backlog or a plan being a conversation. It really depends on if that's towards our goal, how much squishiness, as I call it, are we okay with? If we're okay with figuring some things out as we go and not knowing them, that's I'm okay with that. But if we feel, and when I say we, I'm talking about the team, feels that that puts our goal in jeopardy or our, our desired outcome in jeopardy, and we, we should talk about it. I think that's my immediate thought. The other part of that question that I'm really interested to talk about is, should it be everything? Should everything that we need to do to accomplish a goal somehow be represented, whether it's in a tool or on a backlog or on a post-it note on somebody's wall? What are... What are your thoughts? Well, I mentioned in this specific course that you want to create product backlog items that would fit a card, right? Like a, like a sticky note. What I see happening way too often is that Jira or any other tool is getting abused and it starts to become like their diary. And like every every problem that they can think of is listed in Jira. Every potential scenario that comes to mind is listed in Jira. And therefore, the amount of time that gets spent and invested in just maintaining all these product backlog items or listing them is way excess of the actual value that's being delivered. So there is no value in detailing out every single product backlog item in whatever tool that you're using, whether that's a physical board or Jira or I don't care. If you want to write it on a banana peel, be my guest, but there is no value in there. The value is in having that, that 
conversation with the stakeholders and creating that common understanding. Of course, you want to know, like you want to list a rough idea, but again, this is a tool and there is no value in tools unless you're creating the tool uh, and delivering that to the stakeholder. But the only way that they're going to uncover whatever the value is of these product backlog items is by having a conversation with your stakeholders. So I would focus a lot more on that part of the whole idea, the concept, uh, than listing every detail in, in the tool. Coming back to the first question, how should I interpret the plan for the sprint? Uh, that's a collection of all the product backlog items that the developers drag into or pull into the sprint backlog and how that ties together into the creation of the new increment that supports the sprint goal. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's how I would answer the, how do I interpret the plan for the sprint? It's, or the, the achievement of the goal. It's how am I going to do that? And if it's one thing, it's one thing. If it's a series of many things and many risks, we should talk about that. I, one of the things that in the chat here from another listener that reply or I think seems to apply to this is, is it okay for the scrum master to question if it's possible to achieve the goal? And I think this, this is how I would use this as a scrum master when it comes to the plan to the goal is I might, I'm first of all, I'm okay with a scrum master saying to the team, is this a reasonable goal? First of all, then another question a scrum master might ask is, is the amount of understanding we have of our plan enough? And if the team says, no, I have some big worries. Let's talk about those. A very common facilitation technique it goes by a couple different names, but fist to five is one, right? So I might ask the sprint goal in regards to the sprint goal, give me a fist if you are completely nervous and scared about meeting it and you want to talk about it more and give me a, a five fingered hand raised if you feel extremely confident in both that the goal is reasonable and in what we know about the the plan to get there. And then I, I look at the distribution of the team members and we talk about any gaps. If most people are in agreement, we're probably good, unless it's in agreement that we don't know nearly enough. But um, are there other techniques or suggestions you would have? What just popped to mind is what we discussed a couple of episodes ago with uh, Serge, Serge Beaumont on sociocracy, that obviously if you give a thumbs up, all good. But if you do not think it's going to be a good sprint goal or the plan for the sprint is off or, you know, you just generally disagree, don't disagree, but uh, raise your hand, like palm with your hand up and offer any potential objections and solutions that tie along with it. So it's not just, I disagree and I think the plan sucks, but here's what I what I think we should do. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and to come back to Serge's episode, I've re-listened to it, which I'm not sure if you have yet. And it's a little awkward to listen to ourselves, but (laughs) man, I was just sitting there. And this might sound like I'm patting us on the back for this, but what a great conversation. I've already applied many of the concepts from that. So if a listener has not made the time to listen to Serge talk about sociocracy, whether or not you want to sign up for going deep on the whole idea of sociocracy, this idea of consent-based decision-making and finding a middle ground between an autocratic and a democratic way, I think is extremely helpful for many of us. And sprint planning is a great place to practice that because what that might sound like is this is the goal. Does anybody have an objection or a concern about the feasibility of this goal? And to Serge's point, going person by person so that it's not a just if I keep my mouth shut, I am I'm voting with by my silence. He said as a technique, until it becomes comfortable, you might go person by person and 
then you're listening for objections. And I think that's that's a great technique that you could apply right there in sprint planning. Yeah, and another thing that I've seen frequently is that ideas get killed really fast. I think we should do this. So you offer your objection, and here's my idea. No, it's a stupid idea. Not going to work because of X reason. And if you look at, for instance, improv comedy, you've got the principle of yes and. And it's not, yeah, but I don't, eh, or no. It's yes and. And just keep ranking ideas and, and piling up ideas until you're an hour, an hour and a half, and then start chipping away. Right, you build this whole list of all the ideas yeah. we could possibly do, and then take out everything until you're at a reasonably realistic point. Yes, and for an hour and a half, and then start start taking out stuff. And there's a liberating structure called max specs, min specs that can help here. Is if I asked a team to deliver this goal or this big feature, whatever it is we're working towards, what is everything that you would want to do. Well, that's the max specs version of that. That's the maximal list of every possible thing. And then we could go item by item and say, is this thing absolutely necessary to build? And if they say no, we move it to the side, throw it away, put it back on the backlog, whatever you want to do. And when we go through that, what we're left with is the minimum things that we say is absolutely required to deliver this sprint goal. We might want to do some of those other things, or maybe they will make the, the goal better, but then we can have a decision about that, or we can have a discussion about that, or maybe they're just follow-on items in, in a future time box. So coming back to the original question, how should I interpret the plan for the sprint is not just the items listed in the product backlog, it's the whole conversation around it, understanding uh what kind of dependencies do we have? How and when we need to work together? Uh, are we comfortable and confident that we can actually pull this off, uh, taking into account all of the previous velocity, capacity, and so on? So there's way more to it than just listing the, the, the product backlog items that have been listed. And also don't make your product backlog or sprint backlog a diary. Please do not do this. 100% agree with that. One thing I would add just to give a short and pithy answer to that is also make sure that everyone understands why the sprint goal is important. And if you hear answers like, well, this is what so-and-so said we should do, or I just think that this is the right thing, I think a good team and a good scrum master and a good product owner will become self-reflective and say, but what's the outcome it's going to give us? What's the value to the customer, the market, et cetera? And that question may help it move from just a list of things we need to do to something that is outcome and value-based. Sounds cool. Hopefully, uh, this this gives the listeners some guidelines and some handles to work with. Hopefully, it inspires So Marge asked one other question that I'd like to get your reaction to is how could the Scrum Master support the team to find a goal if you're working with a marshmallow backlog? And I think marshmallows are squishy. So that might be if our backlog is ever changing or is not very well understood, how can we find a goal or what would your reaction be if you observe that to be maybe one of the causes of sprint goal difficulty. I don't think the issue there is sprint goal difficulty. I think the, the issue with product or with uh, uh, backlog marshmallow backlogs is that there are so many stakeholders that want something from us, which is good in a way, uh, but the common understanding of what the objective is that we're really trying to achieve from the product side, where is this product going and what the issues are that we're really trying to tackle. I think that's the uh, um, that should be the main focus. And as a Scrum Master, I've advised other Scrum Masters just to start pulling random items out of their, out of their sprint backlog and see what happens. If someone starts to squeal like a pig, then you know, ah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Uh, but here's my backup. Uh, so we can put, it in, uh, can put it back in. If I've seen teams that had items in there for over four months and then just randomly deleted them and no one ever mentioned anything ever again. So is it really valuable then? No. 
try to pinpoint as a scrum master as well, or, or discuss with your product owner, why do we have such a large product backlog? What can we pull from this? And I've even seen product owners just do a, a, a back to zero backlog after three months. All right, we're going to do a development. Uh, they had a release cycle of three months. Every three months they release because of X and Y reason with their stakeholders and the consum- consumption rate, blah, blah, blah. And then they just clean slate, start over. But, 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 but how could you do this? You know, what if we need that thing that's been sitting there for years in the future? How could you possibly delete a backlog item? Jim, tell me what you're going to eat in September. I have no idea, but it'll probably look like what I ate in February. Then if you're not sure now, how can you be so sure of whatever you're going to need on the product in three, four, five, 12 months from now? It doesn't make sense. You're not working with crystal balls. It may feel like it might be useful uh, at some point in time right now, but it may feel like some point, in time, you know, it's it's too fluid to really grasp. One of the product owners that I used to work with always had a no policy for everything in, the, in his backlog, unless you could convince him otherwise. Mm. I've seen that. I've also seen product owners who have a very open door to their backlog and they will let a lot of things come on the backlog, but they are are rigorously pruning it all the time. And I think that's another great way to handle it. I will never forget. It was probably six, seven years ago. We had a funeral for a backlog item in the the middle of our cubicles. I was just thinking this. Flora mentioned in the chat, in in our audience chat, I coached a team which had a backlog of 1,200 items. Oldest product backlog item was three years. These are graveyard backlogs. These are places where ideas come to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a great technique as a... I think it's a good example of a way that a scrum master can serve the product owner. So we know if you're doing scrum, one of the services of a scrum master is to the product owner, helping them find techniques. One of the techniques that I will routinely use is I'll run a report or export the product backlog, sort it by oldest, and I'll go to the product owner and say, let's talk about the three oldest things on here. Why are they still there? And then that leads to a lot of conversations. And that's why we had a funeral with a cardboard tombstone for a backlog (laughs) item that was over four and a half years old. And it was funny and humorous. And the product owner was very hesitant to delete anything. But once we got over that fear, they were in there pruning left and right. And it became okay to do that. They saw, they saw the benefit of doing it. Would you like, if you would have physical stickies, would you burn the stickies and then scatter around its ashes? Uh, oh, sure. I mean, that could be a very cathartic thing for a lot of people. Like I've burned a lot of things over the years as just a homeowner when I've gotten rid of things like just old papers and things. And it can feel good to just let go of that detritus that we all carry around and and all that I think there's many ways to do it, maybe that are more environmentally <laughs> conscious than others. But but yes, it can be a very cathartic experience for everyone involved. Yeah, this would be a nice event as closure. Absolutely. Right. But then what? What to do? Take the, the most extreme example. This is another question coming from our Mastering Agility mural board. What to do if the sprint backlog runs dry before the end of the sprint? Or we've been so eager and, and proactive and we burned everything in our sprint backlog. Well, I, I guess if that means... Everything that we need to do, I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, If that means we've achieved the goal and we've ran out of important things to do, my my immediate question to the team is, okay, what's all the shit you tell me you never have time to do? Can we do any of those things? 
uh, whether that's writing unit tests, automating something, dealing with that big impediment that we are all aware of, but yet never is above the line for the team to be working on. I do think that if a backlog is running out, it might mean that we're not doing enough forward thinking, enough near-term planning of refinement, and we may not have a vision. And like you were saying with the marshmallow backlog is, that's normally not the problem. The pro- That's normally a symptom when we struggle to find a good goal of a lack of product leadership, a lack of understanding of value and things. So that would be my if the entire backlog is running out and yet everyone agrees there's still a lot of work to do, that's normally a very big symptom of other problems. Especially if it happens on a consistent basis. I mean, I've been working with teams in the past that had a big dependency on a vendor or supplier. And at a certain point they were like the entire sprint depended on them. And the vendor wasn't sure whether they could pull it off. And so the team was fairly conservative with their sprint backlog, which I think was a good thing. But then the vendor uh, was able to deliver a lot faster than they originally forecasted. And because of that, their dependency that they had, they were so reliant on was resolved really quick, quickly. And like three days into the sprint, their entire sprint backlog was resolved because the vendor could deliver faster than they originally anticipated for. So there's a there's a different angle to that. Yeah, one of the the teams I'm working with now, they're delivering smaller things faster than ever before. And very predictably, it's creating stress in other parts of the system. So when we get really good at doing one thing, we might create a bottleneck or a slowdown in another part of the system, whether that's a later workflow step like testing or deployment, or whether that's a downstream consumer of our work. That's a great problem to have, I think, because now we've got the awareness of, okay, we've gotten really good at that. We now need to go address and get better at this other thing. And what I call that is problem whack-a-mole. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it there is always a problem to solve. There is always a slowest part of anything, whether it's our commute or the workflow at the hospital or our workflow on our team. As long as we are solving problems and the problems that crop up are smaller, less severe, less impactful to our goals, that's a great game to play. You should always kind of be good at at smacking the, the mole that pops up. But if you are solving one problem and creating four more and they're severe and they're harmful, that's that's a game nobody's going to want to play. So we have to be very aware of if that's what we're doing. Although it might be a very useful technique as well. Like if you like coming back in the scenario that we just discussed in your sprint planning, you don't really, you as a scrum master observe that your developers might not really go into the place where they should be going with their questions. You can create like a whack-a-mole kind of thing, put it on a table, original idea, whack it and see what kind of questions that your scrum master comes up with. Where do we need to go? What kind of, uh, what, what else? What's more? What if we don't do this? And so on. And then more problems start to arise. And until you've slapped everything away, then you know that you're on the, on the good problem. Right. And I love facilitating problem and solution conversations. I, that is probably one of the best parts of my job is when the t- the team or the group or the audience has a clear problem and we need to talk about possible ways we might solve it. And my favorite go-to phrase for that is a series of questions and they all start with some version of how could we or how might we? What's what's the simplest thing we could try? If money were no object, what would we do? If time were not a concern, what would we do? And those questions can unlock a lot of creativity because they remove constraints that people put into their answer before they approach a problem. It's these kind of questions that you should be asking as a scrum master, because it's not uh, very prescriptive. It's not, I have to, and you ought to, and you must, and you go do this. It's, it's uh, 
creating more of the, the mentality and the mindset that you want for your for the rest of the scrum team and not just the scrum team but for the rest of the organization as well like these kind of questions could be very useful for leaders as well how could we support the team in a better way so that they can deliver better value or how can we create more understanding for the issues of our stakeholders i don't know one of my favorite questions to ask and i got to ask it this week and it caused a very quick silence to fall over the team. Somebody said, uh, we're, they were talking about a specific thing, and the answer from a person was, I'm going to do that, but there's, it's not going to lead to any outcome. And I said, if there's no value in you doing that, why are we doing it? All right. And that's such a simple question, but many people were like, well, we we were told to do it or we have to do it. Or what do you mean? Of course we have to do that. And I'm like, if there's no value in it, it's not going to get released. It's not going to make a, um, help anybody make a decision. It's not going to get captured. Why are we doing it? And what we found in that case was it was wasteful. It was an administrative thing that was a normal status quo type thing. It's just the way it's always been done. And the, all I had to ask is if there's no value, why are we doing it? Not just why was that person doing it, but why is anyone doing it? Go over this, over your, your uh, marshmallow backlogs. You're good. You're golden. Yep. So, Let's see. What kind of other open questions do we have? Quite a bit. Let's see. Here's a whole scenario for you to go uh, to tackle. At the moment, my team is constantly working on bugs that were were caused by incomplete requirements. Nine out of ten steps are implemented. No proper review being done. Now, number ten is missing on production. Product backlog items are not a problem to solve, but step by step instructions. Product management, product owner don't trust the team to figure things out on their own. How could the Scrum Master support this, uh, support to get this resolved? How could the trust be fostered if the teams don't even have a chance to prove their capabilities? So if you read this scenario, this would be like a proper scenario for a professional Scrum class to go over, right? Mm -hmm. What do you figure is the real problem here? I think from reading through this, the real, the root problem could be that there's too many steps the team has to keep track of and they're just human and they are maybe moving too quickly, they're too pressured and they're, they're missing things. That's my immediate thought. The, the other question that comes to mind is what is this thing that's missing? And if, if it's, I don't know, let's just assume it's something like testing or documentation or something like that. What techniques could the Scrum Master use so that they don't forget that thing for a while while they build those habits? Because it's a, a lot of this is habit building. That's what I think Scrum is amazing at. The cadence-based nature of it, and, and it's not just Scrum, many things are good at this, is building habits, So how I would respond to this question is if your team has been missing some step of the workflow that everybody agrees is a problem, what are you going to do as a scrum master to help them build the habits to not miss that thing? Many things. One particular exercise that I personally really like in this case, what could help is empathy mapping. Try to create that understanding of what is it that is causing the behavior of, in this case, product owners, product manager, could be anyone, right? But try to be in, as Jocko Willing calls it and David Marquet, try to look at it through the enemy's eyes. And I don't want to put the product owner in this case as an enemy, but try to view like what is what are the other person's pain? Uh, what's the gain that he's trying to achieve and all the stuff around it? What is he supposed to be doing? What is he doing? What is the things? Uh, what are the things that you observe him doing? And if you start creating this empathy throughout the other person, while looking at 
at this from an inside-out perspective. You might see a whole different issue here, and that gives you, as a Scrum Master, some input to start working with. If it is that this product owner might be getting uh, a lot of organizational pressure as well, or uh, stakeholders might be nagging him, or his own manager might be uh, looking over his shoulder, like, what are you doing? Is this really what, what huh? I could do this a lot better. And if you understand what the issue is that the product owner is trying to achieve and what their uh, their world looks like, you can create more empathy. And that's your, your door in uh, to start working with them. I like that. One thing I would add to that is because this question, I just went out to the mural and took a look at it, is about the, the product owner or project manager or product manager, maybe not trusting the team because they're missing something. And an empathy map, like you're suggesting, could help that person realize that they're forgetting things. And they may be falling victim to one of the biases or what might be called fundamental attribution errors of, well, I'm upset with them because they're always forgetful and that's why I don't trust them. But when I forget something, it's because I'm really busy or I'm juggling a lot of balls or et cetera. And empathy mapping and other other techniques can help people understand that people don't forget things like that because they're bad people. There could be something else at play. And it's rebuilding that trust and also helping the team see value in rebuilding that trust that I think is the goal of a scrum master or a coach or whoever is kind of trying to help this group yeah. improve. And what I personally have seen quite a bit is that in cases like this, where a product owner, or product manager, or anyone else doesn't trust the team, is they, they jump into solutioning mode immediately. Well, I'll manage this. I'll be on top of them. Uh, I'll just crawl all over their skin until all my issues are fixed. That's not the issue. That's a, that's a horrible solution that is going to create even more problems. So it's not really even a solution. But again, yeah. thinking about what is really the issue here and how can we start moving forward to remove this impediment? And and it's not, again, it's not people that are the impediment. It's the behavior and the misalignment and the misunderstanding and maybe even missing empathy. That's where the issue is. Agreed. And it's interesting because things like this relate to another question on the mural, which is, could you please describe what ethics in Scrum means? And we're definitely not going to have time to get into that today, but I think that might be something I would love to hear some stories from your experience about ethical examples manifesting themselves on scrum teams, both good and bad. And I'd love to dig into ethics and morals and other things and how they may apply to a team culture, but something like a bias or low trust, many of these things fall under that realm of, I think of ethics and interpersonal skills. So for the next episode, we're going to dive into what it means to for ethics to be a part of Scrum and how we work with them. Jim, I think this has been a really great conversation. I love your insights, dude. Me too. I, I love hearing from you and the questions we're getting in the live chat and on the mural are, are amazing. I, I hope people are enjoying the insights and the conversations. I would love to get feedback. Like if we could ask, we're getting great questions if the listeners have feedback, how would we like them to submit that to us to make us better? Because we practice what we preach, right? So if you have feedback for Sander and I on the podcast and what we can do to add more value to you, what would that be? Feel free to share that through LinkedIn, through the Mastering Utility Discord, or join these live recordings and just feel free to shout it out in the chat. We're not going to bite. We're not going to scold you. We actually would enjoy this and be as ruthless as possible because that's the only way that we're going to develop this this whole podcast. Jim, absolutely, Chicago, buddy. All right. You have a great weekend and we'll talk soon.
that's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.